0: welcome to navarra live i'm michael walker and to talk about the latest from gaza i'm joined by barnaby rain coming up later tonight another interview with an israeli politician that i think exposes and the reality of the blockade on gaza how reporters in israel palestine are getting shut down from covering the conflict and joe biden leaves israel having met no arab leaders let's go straight into our first story Last night, at just around 7.30 p.m. local time, the Al-Ali hospital in northern Gaza was hit by a missile. This footage, verified by the Washington Post, shows the moment the projectile struck. Gaza's health ministry has now said that 471 Palestinians were killed in the explosion, with at least 314 more wounded. Immediately following the event, doctors from the hospital gave a press conference surrounded by the bodies of the dead. This was Ghassan Abu Sita, a British-Palestinian surgeon volunteering in Gaza for Médecins Sans Frontières.
1: In the evening, after we finished one of the surgeries, we heard a missile screech following by a huge explosion. As a result of the explosion, part of the ceiling of the operating room fell. As I moved towards the outside of the operating room and uh, towards the emergency department, we could see bodies of children piled up, both dead, not moving, and wounded. There were several who had been amputated. I tended to a man who had his leg blown off at the thigh we then carried on trying to resuscitate the patients. When the ambulance came, I decided to help out by carrying one of the wounded who had had a shrapnel in his neck into the ambulance. As I was walking towards the ambulance, there were, parts of, there were body parts everywhere, and there were bodies piled up in the courtyard of the hospital. I then got into the ambulance and escorted the patient back to Shifa Hospital. This morning, when I drove into the hospital, I noted how full the hospital courtyard was with families who had sought refuge inside the hospital, thinking that it would be a safe haven. It's these very same families who are now either dead or critically wounded as a result of this attack.
0: So what we have is not just a hospital being struck, but a makeshift refugee camp and a car park full of people seeking safety from the relentless Israeli bombing of the strip we've seen over the last 11 days. Both Hamas and Israel immediately denied any involvement in the explosion. For their part, Palestinian authorities said it was caused by an Israeli airstrike. That was in accordance with the explanation offered by the Christian organization based in Jerusalem, who run the hospital, and the international NGO, Médecins Sans Frontières, who tweeted this. We are horrified by the recent Israeli bombing of Ali Arab Hospital. as a city which was treating patients and hosting displaced Gazans. Hundreds of people have reportedly been killed. This is a massacre. It is absolutely unacceptable. But the Israelis said the blast was caused by a failed rocket launched by the militant group Islamic Jihad. We'll look at those claims in a moment. First, though, this was one BBC journalist's immediate perspective from the ground.
2: The Israeli military has been contacted uh, for comment, and they have said that they are investigating but uh, you know it is hard to see what else this could be really given the size of the explosion other than an israeli airstrike or several airstrikes uh because you know when we've seen rockets being fired out of gaza uh, we never see uh, explosions of that scale we might see uh, half a dozen maybe a few more people being killed in such rocket attacks but we've never seen anything uh, on the scale of the sort of explosion on the video I was watching earlier, uh, which, as you say, is still to be verified.
0: Let's move on to Israel's explanations. First, following the explosion, Israel's official Twitter account posted this video purporting to show the strike recorded by the IDF. They said the clip shows a, quote, enemy rocket barrage fired from inside Gaza City at, according to the timestamps, 7.59 p.m. The account then went on to say, "Quote: The Islamic Jihad terrorist organization is responsible for the failed shooting that hit the hospital. The only problem with that piece of evidence, it was filmed at least 30 minutes after the hospital explosion. That tweet was later deleted and then reposted without the attached video. Also deleting tweets was Hanania Naftali, who works in Israel's digital warfare unit and is a media advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu. He initially posted this on Twitter, Breaking: Israeli Air Force struck a Hamas terrorist base inside a hospital in Gaza. A multiple number of terrorists are dead. It's heartbreaking that Hamas is launching rockets from hospitals, mosques, schools, and using civilians as human shields. And then he's got this hashtag, Hamas is ISIS. Now that tweet was quickly replaced with this. The mysterious explosion in Gaza. Hamas blames Israel for this. I believe it is either a failed rocket that hit the hospital or something that was done on purpose in order to get international support. So a a real U-turn there on his perspective. Um, And that tweet was then followed up by this one. Earlier today, I shared a report that was published on Reuters about the bombing at the hospital in Gaza, which falsely stated Israel struck the hospital. I mistakenly shared this information in a since-deleted post in which I referenced Hamas's routine use of hospitals to store weapons caches and conduct terrorist activity. I apologize for this error, as the IDF does not bomb hospitals. I assume Israel was targeting one of the Hamas bases in Gaza. It is known that Hamas is using civilians as human shields. It is a war crime and a crime against humanity. This should be the focus. The IDF has now provided more information, which they say is evidence that the explosion was caused by a failed missile launched by Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad. This morning, they released a recording apparently between two Hamas fighters. In the recording, you'll hear reference to the Al-Mamdani Hospital, another name for the Al-Ali Hospital that was struck.
2: i you the بيحكوا إن شظايا تبعت الصاروخ إنه شظايا محلية مش زي شظايا يش بدو سبحان الله من عندنا مرجاش غيريني بجرسة دي عاد يا <تصفيق> دول من المقبرة الورى دي بس حط حط محط فيه إيش بتلاقيهم طالعينهم من المقبرة الورى المستشفى المعمداني دي بإله هو فسه ونزل عندهم
3: هو في مضبرة
0: Remember, Israel just failed to foresee the deadliest attack on its territory since its foundation. Um, So I'm not sure how much faith I have that they would be able to immediately find a phone call between two militants admitting their guilt for a crime Israel has been widely accused of, of committing. So I take that with an absolute pinch of salt, obviously very, very easy to fake, and independent experts seem to agree. Alex Thompson is chief correspondent at Channel 4 News. He tweeted this today. Several experts confirm Hamas's view to Channel 4 News that the audio tape of Hamas operatives, or quote-unquote Hamas operatives, talking about the missile malfunction is a fake. They say the tone, syntax, accent, and idiom are absurd. So that's from experts trusted by Channel 4 News. I suppose one reason not to trust it is because Israel has a long record of lying to cover its back. In May last year, Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh was shot in the head while covering an Israeli military raid on the Jenin refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. That was despite very clearly wearing a press flak jacket and helmet. Now, Israel initially denied responsibility for the killing, blaming Hamas instead. It was only six months later that they finally admitted that there was, quote, high probability, unquote, that an Israeli bullet had killed her. And that point was made directly to the IDF at a press conference in Tel Aviv this morning.
4: I'd also like you to address the question of credibility, because frankly, the IDF has a less than perfect track record with the issue of credibility. Among other incidents, the Israeli government initially claimed that it was armed Palestinian militants who killed the journalist Shireen Abu Akhle, which we know is not true. So why should the world trust you now?
5: Because of uh, the importance of credibility, and uh, in the past, uh, we had uh, uh, our, uh, our, our, ourselves were fast to go to conclusions. This is why in this event, we took the time, took us more than five hours. We wanted to double check everything, make sure we're credible. Again, we wanted to double check everything, make sure we're credible, opposed to the other events that you mentioned.
0: So in the past, we'd rushed to make statements which covered our backs but turned out to be false. But this time, for reasons, you can believe us. Now, also asking questions about the trustworthiness of IDF claims this morning was Michelle Hussein on Radio 4's Today programme. She asked the IDF spokesperson, Peter Lerner, this. Are you willing to submit what you are putting forward to an independent body for investigation?
6: I mean, that's a ridiculous question to begin with. I would say, just pointing out that when Hamas says something, no, no uh, in, uh, evidence is required. You quote them endlessly, and 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 they are repeated, and and they bring out the people. But when Israel comes forward, says something, uh, you ask, "Where's the evidence?" When we present the evidence, no, I know you've say, put
1: the
4: evidence oh, forward. You've, evidence. You've, you've, you've 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 put, put, you've put the, the evidence. evidence <laughs>
6: will, will, will an independent force look at it. Now we are a serious military. We take our business extremely serious. We have we initiated a senior high level. Investigation in order to get to the bottom of, the, uh, of what happened yesterday. And what happened is a very clear reality. W- the IDF did not conduct a strike against the, the hospital because we do not target hospitals. First off, we, we made sure, we double checked, and we made sure that there was no strikes, no mistakes by, that can happen. And mistakes can happen, but this was not one of those.
0: We're a serious military. We take our business extremely seriously. And we do not target hospitals. Well, we've heard that claim a lot, but it seems to be false. Um, so today, a priest at the Anglican diocese that owns the Gaza hospital told the BBC this.
3: We've been terrified for them ever since the war um, in Gaza started, and even more terrified when a missile hit the hospital on Saturday as a, as a warning that uh, it was not a safe place to stay. Sorry, so hang it, on.
2: There was, the, there was an attack on the hospital over the weekend.
3: Yes, there was. Saturday, missile hit the hospital, damaged uh, the building extensively and caused the injury of four people. Do you know where that came from? Um, My understanding is that it has been accepted as an Israeli missile. Again, you know, I'm not party to official information, but that is my understanding.
0: Israel has also been alerting other hospitals to evacuate at short notice. Last week, Médecins Sans Frontières posted this. Breaking. Israel has given Al-Oda hospital just two hours to evacuate. Our staff are still treating patients. We unequivocally condemn this action, the continued indiscriminate bloodshed and attacks on healthcare in Gaza. We are trying to protect our staff and patients. Israel has form here as well. During the 2014 invasion of Gaza, Israel treated hospitals as legitimate targets. In July that year, the Al-Wafa hospital simply vanished after it came under fire from an Israeli air raid. Just a few days later, the Al-Aqsa hospital was bombed too, with missiles striking its intensive care unit. That attack led to four deaths. So, Israel has a history of bombing hospitals. Israel has bombed the Al-Alhi hospital just this week, and Israel also has a long record of lying about the atrocities it commits. So, don't necessarily take their defences at face value. There are, however, some reasons to question and the nature of the explosion at the Al-Alhi hospital, and whether it was caused by an Israeli airstrike. This is a photo from this morning showing the aftermath of the explosion. You can see lots of burnt out cars, but there is neither the kind of large crater or building damage one would expect from a standard Israeli airstrike. You would have seen those um, many videos of those. They bring down buildings in in a couple of seconds. This is a close-up of what the impact site looks like. As you can see, there's a crater, but it's not what you'd expect from a traditional Israeli airstrike. Of course, though, that doesn't necessarily mean it was a result of Palestinian rocket fire. Now, Francesco Sebregondi was a research fellow with the NGO Forensic Architecture when they did a joint investigation with Amnesty International into Israel's 2014 Gaza offensive. He tweeted this, This morning, footage has emerged of the site of the hospital, starting with the IDF itself, which published drone footage, arguing that the absence of visible crater is proof that it's not them, but a failed rocket launch by Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And he goes on to say this. Indeed, if a one ton bomb, like a guided MK-84, many of which have been used by the IDF to bomb Gaza, would indeed, that would result in a large crater, so that would be 10 or 15 metres wide, otherwise though other missiles such as a drone fired spike for example also used by the IDF would not leave a considerable crater so he's saying yes he accepts this idea that it's not the something you know it's not one of these sort of ton uh, one of these bombs that weighs a ton from the Israeli Air Force that we've seen used in, in in Gaza so many times over the past week but it could be another weapon from Israel which we know they have used in previous Wars as well um so up in the air nonetheless us president joe biden has made up his mind speaking in tel aviv today he said this
3: deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in gaza yesterday and based on what i've seen it appears as though it was done by the other team not not you but there's a lot of people out there not sure so we got a lot we've got to overcome a lot of things
0: Barnaby, um, the bombing of this hospital has had an incredible amount of impact regardless of
4: what caused it. But what's what's your take on this? Do you have an interpretation? Israel ordered 22 hospitals evacuated. The World Health Organization called that a death sentence for patients in those hospitals who couldn't be moved and so were being left to die. One of the hospitals that Israel ordered evacuated was the hospital that has now been bombed. So Israel said it was going to bomb hospitals Then a hospital got bombed. Israel's dropped more bombs on Gaza this week than America dropped on Afghanistan in the first year of their occupation of Afghanistan in 2001. Fadi Diab, a priest in Ramallah, said, we hold the occupying power responsible. If it's good enough for a priest, it's good enough for me and we know that Israel continues to block electricity from baby incubators and dialysis patients we know that Israel continues to block water from surgeons and el- elderly people i mean people in Gaza don't have access to clean water food from survivors and we know that Israel bombs roads after it tells people to flee along those roads we also know that on october the 14th israel targeted ambulances and we know that before this bombing israel had already killed 28 medical staff in Gaza. We know too, as you said, that part of the Israeli playbook is to lie about the attacks, the murders. It doesn't please me to say this. In 1996, Israel shelled a UN compound in Lebanon, blamed it on others. It wasn't true. In 2006, Israel murdered an entire family on a beach in Gaza. The IDF had a quick investigation that, uh, that said the IDF wasn't responsible. It wasn't true. In 2014, Mark Regev, we've seen him again on our TV screens recently, claimed that UNRWA sites, that's UN Refugee and Works Agency sites, were used to launch missiles. The UN investigated it wasn't true. Last year, Israeli forces murdered Palestinian journalist Shireen Ibuakle, blamed Palestinians it wasn't true. Journalists can't really investigate what's going on in Gaza because even the Washington Post, which is not, I tell you, a friend of the Palestinian people, says it is, quote, becoming impossible to report from Gaza under the conditions of siege and bombardment that Israel has established. So part of what concerns me here, looking at the Western media, because this whole brutal siege and bombardment campaign by Israel has been an object lesson in the racism that structures everything in our media ecosystem. It has been quite Well, I want to say extraordinary, but uh, I haven't even been that surprised to watch uh, Western journalists rush to report an old blood libel, to rush to report that 40 babies were beheaded bloodthirsty, savage Palestinians, even though it later turned out there wasn't much evidence for it, completely ignore, by the way, Hamas's accounts of what happened in their attack and just report the Israeli accounts. But then when Israel says, despite this record of lying, when Israel says that they're not sure who bombed this hospital or blames Palestinians for killing their own children, uh, journalists rush to say, of course, we must be measured and take them seriously, including, I should say, some left-wing journalists. And that's concerning to people because it seems to be a kind of double standard that is Uh, uh, reeks of racism. Uh, Raz Segal, the uh, Israeli genocide expert, is calling what happens in Gaza a textbook case of genocide now. 800 legal scholars have written that they are, quote, compelled to sound the alarm about the possibility of genocide in Gaza. It is clear that Israel is targeting civilians. They've targeted residential buildings. They've targeted journalists. They've targeted medics and medical facilities. This isn't the first case. The question we, I think, should ask is why they're doing this. Why this brutal blanket campaign, cutting off water. If you didn't want to target civilians, you wouldn't cut off water and you wouldn't cut off fuel. Why are they doing it? They don't need to. They have an iron dome missile defense system that means that most missiles the Palestinians fire into Israel don't reach targets. They could negotiate the release of hostages. There are uh, 6,000 Palestinian prisoners languishing in Israeli jails without receiving fair trials, serious allegations of torture, uh, which we rarely hear about on the news, though we hear much about Israeli hostages in Gaza. They could negotiate for the release of their hostages. Instead, they're bombing Gaza and killing, by some reports, some of their own hostages. This won't, of course, destroy Hamas. When you carpet bomb people who are living under a colonial siege and constant bombardment, the only effect it can have is to strengthen people's fury, anger, and resolve to resist the colonizing power. So, of course, it won't break resistance. Even if they were to destroy the Hamas infrastructure, something else would emerge in its place. So, why? Why are they doing this? It's not, by the way, because Hamas caused the problem. Because in the West Bank, where there is no Hamas regime, settlers have attacked funerals in the last week and launched attacks on Palestinian villages, killing parents and children. And the IDF has shot and killed 62 Palestinians in the last week uh, when I last checked uh, in the West Bank, which is a place that does not have a Hamas government. And before this latest massacre, 2023 was already the deadliest year on record for children in the West Bank, with one child murdered every week by Israeli forces. So it isn't because there's a resistance enclave that Israel's violent. It seems to have this lashing out violent impulse uh, regardless. The reason is that it's the logic of the colonizer. The reason is that Israelis know deep down, and I'm speaking here of some of my own family members, so it pains me but they know deep down that they are living in other people's stolen homes. They know that they are living in a state that was premised on an act of ethnic cleansing when 700,000 Palestinians were driven from their homes. That's why Gaza is so densely populated, because most of the Palestinians living in Gaza aren't from Gaza. They're refugees penned in there because they were chased out of other parts of Israel. And that's why the important thing to do now is not simply to call for peace, not simply to call for the end of this massacre, though that is crucial, but to understand that we want a world in which people don't live penned in an open-air prison because they're chased from their homes, to call not simply for peace but for freedom, and to say when we see people partying, at a rave and then being killed by Hamas operatives, that they were partying five miles away from an open air prison. If, if you move five miles from where those people were partying in Israel to Gaza, life expectancy drops 10 years. We don't just want peace and the return of a world in which that is the case. We desperately want desperately want people all over the world in our millions for freedom, for everyone to be able to live a life of freedom and dignity. Um, and, and, and that's why we want victory uh, for the Palestinian people.
0: I agree with most of that. I suppose on this question of verification, I mean, you've, you've sort of then given given a political position, which I'm very sympathetic towards. Um, when it comes to, do you just say, okay, well, this was an Israeli airstrike? I will take you back. I mean, in, 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 in what you just said, you were saying there are many journalists who are willing to put on their front pages that 40 babies were beheaded with zero evidence. Um, and then, you know, we, we did a video sort of critiquing that, saying there's no verification for this. Um, I actually, I mean, we haven't really covered any of this stuff, which is being put out by people who have gone on record and sort of said, oh, we saw this and that brutality in the the kibbutzes. Because I think if it's just based on one or two um, sort of eyewitnesses who also probably have some political prejudices themselves, that's not good enough for for us to report it. So then uh, there is a similar situation here now, whereby if there are doubts, then you should say it appears to be this or it appears to be that. And to be honest, that shouldn't have that much impact on the politics of all of this, because we know that Israel is definitely doing enough bad stuff to not have to necessarily rule out the possibility that this could have been something else. I mean, I think we will see you know, more forensic evidence from sort of people over the next days and, and weeks. Because to me, I think both options are possible, right? I, I, I don't think my solidarity with Palestinian people is dependent on, on which one of these is, is true. But both to me do seem possible. And I do think that sort of as journalists not just as political activists, you do have to sort of take account of the fact that verification does matter. Obviously, you need to you know, uphold both
4: sides um, to, to that standard. I mean, what do you make of that? I think you should think about the context of the last week and a half in which we have witnessed the insidious dehumanization of the Palestinian people. They beheaded 40 babies, they blew up their own hospital, and they have been compared, including by some commentators on the British left, to Nazis and pogromists. Um... Who are you that talking about here? Of, On the, well, who, who, Well, uh, if you want names, uh, Paul Mason uh, says that that compares Palestinians uh, breaking out of a cage um, and and entering Israel uh, as part of a guerrilla war when they've been left with no negotiations process, no uh, precise weapons, uh, guided missile technology. He compares them to carrying out pogroms, which is an insult both to Palestinians in a cage and to my ancestors who were genuine victims of pogroms and weren't colonial settlers who'd stolen people's land. Um, I saw Owen Jones saying, if we really want to name names, I saw Owen Jones saying, talking about the Hamas attack as the most Jews dying since the Holocaust. Again, deeply, deeply insulting both to Palestinians and to those who were murdered in the Holocaust. So that kind of dehumanization functions to legitimate the massacre of people because it makes these people, Palestinians, um, something disgusting and, um, and, and bigoted and savage and violent. And there's just a history of this that you should be aware of. There's a very long history of when the colonized strike back and say very clearly that they're striking back for freedom and dignity, they are discussed instead as bloodthirsty savages who have a lust for chaos and destruction, and that's why they're fighting. And that kind of language functions to legitimate the colonial violence that is then meted out to them. So when a hospital is blown up and the Israeli state says it was the Palestinians, they killed their own children, you should be aware that it's not simply unbiased journalistic integrity to report that claim. There's a, there's a deep, very, very violent ideological pressure at work in that claim. And it troubles me. It troubles me because I am the descendant of people who for 2000 years, white Christian Europe excluded and said eventually was subhuman Jews. Um, And so I see this language when Israelis talk about human animals, when Israelis talk about children of darkness, as Netanyahu did, when Israelis talk about the law of the jungle. This is the language that was developed to exclude and murder and persecute my people, Jews. It was then used across Africa and Asia and South America to exclude and murder and brutalize people. Israel is just the latest iteration of violent colonial Western power. It's no surprise that America and Britain support it. They developed that kind of racist language, and they're still drowning thousands of people every year in the Mediterranean. So that's the kind of racist world order we live in. And that's the kind of racist world order that allows Israeli politicians to be blasé about the claim that Palestinians kill their own children.
0: I just feel like you're conflating quite a lot of things there. So you're, you're conflating sort of the Palestinian government, call, sorry, not the, the Israeli government, calling Palestinians children. And I mean, I, I wouldn't use this sort of Holocaust comparison, but I suppose what people were talking about there, and what I assume I was talking about there, is, is why people are upset about this, why, why people would be upset by a lot of civilians getting killed in Israel you know even though you say there there, there was some unfairness to the fact that people can party next to the Gaza wall but still I think people should you know put forward some sympathy to people who are just going to a party and the parents of those people who are just going to a party and I suppose I'm I'm, I'm not sure if you're
4: almost disagreeing with that well I don't think that any. Dying is ever a good thing. I think that anyone dying is a tragedy. I have never been deliberately starved by a colonial power that chased me from my land, so I try not to judge the actions of people who have been in that position. I live in Britain, where our government sends weapons to Israel. What we can do is not our time um, condemning and attacking the actions of the people killed with the bombs that our taxes fund, but instead try to ensure that our taxes no longer fund those bombs. We all celebrate Nelson Mandela. The majority of people killed by the ANC in their armed struggle campaign were, were civilians. The ANC felt that that armed struggle campaign was necessary to end a system of racist dehumanization in South Africa. Mandela was called a terrorist for it and attacked for it. There's a long history of this kind of I learned with stopping our money going to murdering Palestinian uh, men, women and children. Um, and I think that time spent attacking Palestinians for the military strategies that they choose um, um, is frankly offensive and insulting, given that none of us have ever lived for decades under an occupation and blockade.
0: I mean, so as far as I understand it, though the ANC example was quite different. I, I think they, they didn't kill that many. I think it was sort of in the, in the low hundreds over the whole campaign then they ended up sort of renouncing it. And I suppose part of the anti-apartheid struggle was in a way about sort of building links to, I mean, obviously it was was outside pressure. It was rebellion. It was uh, a a huge um, boycott and sanctions from the outside, which is why I'm in favor of BDS. But I don't think they sort of necessarily went to things such as sort of music festivals and just killed lots of people. Like to me, there's not only moral problems with that. It seems a bit strategically odd I suppose strategically that makes sense if you're going for this sort of Algeria model, which is you're trying to scare people so much that they sort of leave your land and you can take it back. Um, I mean, potentially that's what people are going for. I'm just not sure if that's particularly realistic in, in this situation because I think you know, the people of Israel are somewhat
4: different to the French Algerians who are in, in Algeria. I really, really, really don't want people to be killed at music festivals. I want a world in which, frankly, I really, really like music festivals. I want a world in which we can all dance at music festivals and be free. Um, I don't want a world in which people dance at music festivals five miles away from an open air prison camp in which more than half the population is food insecure, in which in this territory, Gaza, which was partly dependent on fishing, 85% of its fishing waters are controlled by Israel. Every single aspect of the movement of people in the territory is so controlled by Israel that they can cut off food and water and fuel at will. I don't think that's a normal situation that should be allowed to continue. I want there to be strikes and nonviolent resistance and no one to be harmed in the march to freedom. Of course, I want that. Everyone wants that. But in a situation in which, for decades, the Israeli state has occupied and oppressed and besieged and bombarded Palestinians. For people in the West who have not been in that position to spend their time condemning the things that Palestinians do when our governments fund the Israeli war machine, I just think it's the wrong uh, choice of our attention. I think that's wrong. And I think that to compare Palestinians, and you said you wouldn't do this, but to compare Palestinians to anti-Semitic persecutors of Jews who rounded us up just for living in Europe And put us eventually in gas chambers to compare, to to, to tar Europe's shame at its failure to prevent centuries of anti-Semitism and to accuse Palestinians who did not carry out the Holocaust, Europeans did, to accuse Palestinians of that because they just want to live in peace and freedom, I think it's just frankly sickening. It genuinely, genuinely sickens me. It's an insult to generations of my family members who were butchered by the same kind of brutality and exclusion that said some people are human animals, that now we see carried out by the state of Israel. Yes, those people those people in the state of Israel are Jews, but they've just taken on, they've taken on the European Gentiles way of thinking about the world. They've taken on all the violence that they call Western civilization, which says some people have rights and other people don't. And so just as we had to break the back of czarism, and just as we had to break the back of, of, of every anti-Semitic regime, and just as we had to break the back of European colonialism everywhere, we have to break the back of the Zionist state so that everyone can be free. Everyone can live in peace and freedom. But you know, yeah, like Palestinians, uh, what are, uh, I, I don't know what, is supposed to do, you know. Israel was about to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, the Israel has completely divided the Palestinian Liberation Movement, so that in the West Bank they have a kind of puppet regime in the Palestinian Authority, which has guns that it doesn't turn on the Israeli state, but on Palestinian protesters sympathizing with Gaza. Uh, the Palestinian movement is divided. It doesn't have uh, regional uh, allies. Very few regional allies. Um, the situation is pretty brutal, and Palestinians are trying to find a way to to, to to march for freedom. And when they marched peacefully, when they marched peacefully a few years ago up to the wall that Israel is constructed to keep them from their homes, Israel shot and killed them. They also shot and killed a bunch of Gandhi's people
0: and he still kept on being Gandhi. But I'm not saying we should judge them for that. I suppose, I I think where we differ, I agree, the absolute focus should be on the crimes of Israel because they are the occupying power. That's what we do on this show. We spend 95% of our time talking about that. I do think on the left, there is a sort of reluctance to say, well, if you then spend 5% of your time saying, I also think that massacring people at a music festival is wrong, you were somehow undermining the Palestinian cause. I think we disagree on that, but we should move on. Let's go to our next story. Joe Biden's trip to the Middle East was supposed to include meetings with leaders from Israel, the Palestinian Authority, and neighboring Arab states. But before Biden's plane had even taken off, all but his meeting with Netanyahu was canceled. The event that changed everything was the deadly explosion at a Gaza hospital, and the Palestinian president was the first to respond. Mahmoud Abbas pulled out of a proposed summit in Jordan, where he had been set to meet with Biden alongside the King of Jordan and the President of Egypt. Abbas said that talks about anything other than stopping the war were unacceptable, and Jordan agreed. They cancelled the entire summit with the Foreign Minister Ayman Safadi, saying the meeting would be held at a time when the parties could agree to end the, quote, war and massacres against Palestinians. Safadi blamed Israel for pushing the region to the brink of the abyss. Jordan and the Palestinian Authority are not alone in blaming Israel for the hospital attack. Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are among those who have condemned what they see as an Israeli atrocity. And the response of leaders in the region might be driven somewhat by the reaction of their publics. In Jordan's capital city of Amman, protesters gathered outside the Israeli embassy and some even tried to storm it. But they were met with tear gas by law enforcement. In Lebanon's capital Beirut, protesters gathered at the American embassy. There were also protests in Baghdad, Istanbul and Tehran. And in Ramallah, in the West Bank, thousands took to the streets to protest Israel as well as Mahmoud Abbas's government, which they see as weak. There were clashes between protesters and police there as well. So outrage in the Arab world has meant the only meeting Biden had was with Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, they gave a press conference after they met, and Biden said this:
3: "Justice must be done. But I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it." After 9 11, we were in rage in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. I'm the first U.S. President to visit Israel in time of war. I've made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for the leadership. There's always cost, but it requires being deliberate. It requires asking very hard questions. It requires clarity about the objectives and an honest assessment about whether the path you're on will achieve those objectives. The vast majority of Palestinians are not Hamas. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people.
0: To get a Palestinian perspective on Biden's visit, I spoke earlier to Abdel Razak Takriti, who is chair of Arab History at the University of Houston. I started by asking him what he believes Biden was trying to achieve.
2: Well, he's trying to further the Israeli dominance project in the region. Uh, Biden is a self-declared Zionist. Is a huge supporter of the Israeli uh, uh, government uh, as it uh, seeks to uh, continue its project to marginalize uh, uh, Palestinians uh, in the occupied territories and to expand uh, its rule uh, there.
0: The argument that he would make, or sort of that his, his advisors would make, is is that what he's trying to do is 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 restrain Israel to some degree to say yes, you know, you have the right to, to to defend yourself, but please less war crimes because then it's embarrassing for the United States to support you. I mean, do you do you think that's significant at all?
2: I don't. I don't think that's actually what he's doing. I think what is going on is uh, in the Biden doctrine uh, for the Middle East as a whole has been to try to integrate uh, the Israeli state into uh, the region through uh, bypassing Palestinians and getting normalization deals with major Arab powers, especially Saudi Arabia. Uh, and what that means then is a perpetuation uh, of uh, conditions that have been described by Human Rights Watch, uh, by Amnesty International, and by Israel's leading home, uh, uh, human rights organization that as apartheid. So uh, he is essentially entrenching the apartheid system. And I want to focus on the structural dimension here, because all too often in the news media that that you listen to, uh, they focus on uh, just events without giving them context, which means uh, we lose meaning. Without context, there is no meaning.
0: You think that context has to be occupation and apartheid, presumably. So you you don't think it matters too much whether or not Abbas and, and Jordan and Egypt cancel a meeting with Biden, you think this is all window dressing to sort of a, a fundamental reality which is, which is going on?
2: If you were talking about apartheid South Africa, uh, you would definitely uh, talk about it in terms of apartheid. And the, the news media would have talked about it in terms of the actual structural process that uh, goes on there. So yes, it would be silly to talk about Palestine without talking about the realities that confront the Palestinian people. Palestinian people are dispossessed All of the uh, areas that the Israeli state are built in now are owned by Palestinian people. It's stolen land. This is literally owned by Palestinian people, okay? Uh, It is a settler colonial state. Netanyahu himself comes from Polish uh, descent. Uh, All the major Israeli figures do not come originally from Palestine. Uh, Their uh, parents were born elsewhere. Uh, That tells you something. The people of Gaza are refugees that were kicked out They were ethnically cleansed uh, from the Israeli state. And now there is a second ethnic cleansing program going on there that is supported by the United States. And I'm afraid by uh, Britain and other major European powers. Uh, So, yes, there is talk about him trying to restrain the Israeli state. But that's only so as to facilitate its greater integration in the region, which would then uh, facilitate uh, the continuation of a deeply unjust uh, structural process.
0: So you don't have much faith in, in Joe Biden sort of playing a, an honest broker role here. Um, what do you think about the Arab states in the region? Um, can they do anything to try and limit the damage done by Israel in this war?
2: Here is the problem uh, in the Middle East. Americanization means Israelization in the Middle East because the, the Israeli uh, stance uh, of American politicians uh, has to do with domestic politics. It doesn't have to do with Uh, the international calculations of the United States primarily. So uh, if it's a domestic political issue in the United States that has uh, very strong uh, uh, forces pushing for it, including Joe Biden himself, who, as I mentioned earlier, identifies, self-identifies as a strong uh, uh, Zionist. So if that's the case, uh, then uh, we're dealing uh, with a situation where the Arab states feel that gaining American approval requires uh, collaborating with the Israeli colonial project. And that's been the problem all along. America puts enormous pressure on the Arab states uh, to normalize. It puts enormous pressure on the Arab states uh, to uh, not only stop supporting Palestinians, but actually working towards undermining Palestinians. Now, there's only one obstacle in the face of this uh, pressure, which is that the, uh, the public, the Arab public, Uh, The majority of people, uh, not just in the Arab world, but across the Middle East, across the Islamic world, and across the Afro-Asian world, uh, they do not uh, uh, support uh, Zionism. Uh, In fact, they support uh, the struggle of the Palestinian people uh, for freedom from colonization, freedom from apartheid, uh, and uh, for political uh, and national rights.
0: One uncertainty I have in sort of the way this is, or you're discussing this, is you're making this clear distinction between people who are Zionists and people who, who aren't Zionists. And I suppose in terms of end states, some people want a two-state solution, some people want a one-state solution. But to my mind, um, those things are so far off, especially sort of any outcome that might be satisfactory to the, to the Palestinians, that probably it does make sense to talk about sort of tactical alliances along the way. So if there is sort of alliances one can make with someone who might have a, a different opinion about what end state they want in Palestine, it might be worth working with some Zionists to try and stop Israel doing war crimes. I mean, where do, you, where do you stand on that? How would you respond to
2: that? Look, if you still believe that any Western politician that says they support the two-state solution is committed to a solution in Palestine along these lines, then I'm afraid you're very naive, because there, there has been uh, uh, to constant talk of a two-state solution uh, uh, since they passed the, uh, the, the UN Partition Resolution in 1947. And in fact, the only state solution they have been supporting in reality, on the ground, militarily, diplomatically, and financially, is the Israeli state solution, which is the solution of Jewish dominance in Palestine over the Palestinian Arab inhabitants. This is actually what, has happening, what is happening on the ground. So you might tell me there are politicians that support this. Yeah, sure. I mean, all, almost all Western politicians speak of uh, a two-state solution. But in reality, that is is not what they're implementing. So when you're supporting the Israeli state, you're actually undermining all solutions uh, in this um, this part of the world. Secondly, I have a problem with uh, talking about structural processes and line of solutions uh, because you're you're, you're not actually presenting what the problem uh, on the ground is uh, and at the same time, you keep on talking about wanting to, to solve it. You can't solve a problem without actually diagnosing it and diagnosing it correctly.
0: That was Abdel Razak Takriti speaking to me earlier today. Um, I want to go to a piece in the FT. So the Financial Times has an interesting piece out today. So it's about how the West's unquestioning support for Israel's siege and bombardment of Gaza is undermining support for Ukraine from countries in the developing world. Now, this was a particularly interesting passage from the piece. In the first days after Hamas's assault, some Western diplomats worried that the US was given carte blanche to Israel to attack Gaza with full force. That had eroded efforts since Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine to build consensus with leading states in the so-called Global South, such as India, Brazil and South Africa, on the need to uphold a global rules-based order. That was said by more than a dozen Western officials. The backlash had solidified entrenched positions in the developing world on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as officials say. They warned that this could derail future diplomatic efforts on Ukraine. Now, quote, we have definitely lost the battle in the global south, said one senior G7 diplomat. All the work we have done with the global south over Ukraine has been lost. Forget about rules. Forget about world order. They won't ever listen to us again. Barnaby, I want your thoughts, I suppose, on those arguments put forward there in in the FT, which is to say that the the West's uncritical approach towards an occupier committing war crimes um, has undermined its uh, legitimacy when it tries to support Ukraine against an occupier committing war crimes.
4: I doubt anyone has been very surprised. Um, I mean, Western civilization is probably the most violent idea in human history. It's the idea that gave us the transatlantic slave trade, the death factories of Auschwitz, atom bombs, napalm, and now white phosphorus in Gaza uh, burning the skin of the children it kills. Um, So in Ukraine, when they say we're here to defend Western civilization, I think you can understand why many millions of us all over the world say we'll take a pass Many of us in Britain who come from lineages where our ancestors were brutalized by Western civilization um, and many billions all over the world who still today face the inequalities that are written into Western civilization. Um, Think about where we are in Britain. Britain, which talks a language of democracy, which which screened on Sky News, uh, people making Molotov cocktails in Ukraine and told us what heroes they were. And we've had endless funding from the British state for the national self-determination struggle of Ukrainians, which by the way, Michael, might sometimes kill civilians. And I think that's a tragedy. Um, the British state is not rallying, of course, to send its money to Hamas and to Palestinians um, fighting for their self-determination. Instead, it's sending naval ships to Israel, which blockades Gaza from the sea. The police in Britain have invaded the home of a doctor that we earlier saw on this show working in Gaza to harass his family. A black Ofcom director was sacked for liking a Black Lives Matter post that criticized Israel. Police have been seeking out black protesters for pictures that they've been wearing on their clothing. Um, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, urged police to suppress speech. And we've had calls in Parliament to follow France and Germany in suppressing protests. France banning all pro-Palestine protests. So that's the kind of climate we live in in the West, and it's just not very surprising. Because as I say, although they'll they'll do a lot to accuse the critics of Israel of anti-Semitism, um, in fact, for Western politicians, they don't much care about Israel being a Jewish state, except where it's convenient for them. What they care about is that it's a colonial state, it's a useful imperialist ally for them in the region where they need where they want to control the Middle East. Um, it's part of a wider imperialist structure. Yes, it's a very violent settler colonial state, but it's also part of a wider imperialist structure that includes the United States centrally, and also includes Britain and France and so on. That's why in 1956, when Egyptians thought they should have control of their own canal at Suez, it wasn't just Britain and France that invaded to ensure it remained under colonial control. It was the young state of Israel that was able to invade as well. Israel has long been part of a wider imperial infrastructure, and that's the reason that its victims are treated as expendable and disgusting and human animals, and always have been. Um, And so all we need to do in Britain, I mean, Palestinians don't really care that much what we think about about their tactics but what we need to do is to be calling for our government to stop arming israel enabling a genocide um and um and and to raise that slogan that the home secretary in britain wants to ban from the river to the sea palestine will be free which doesn't mean it's not a call for genocide it's not a call for ethnic cleansing it's israel that did that it's a call for everyone to be able to live in peace freedom and equality at the end of an ethno state just as an ethno state was ended in south africa i suppose on that
0: point i mean we keep we keep going off topic because you keep raising things that i find interesting but in terms of the to the river to the sea. I mean, that will presumably have to include some sort of Israeli consent for this. I suppose I, I'm just a very practical, pragmatic person, right? And I don't actually see any end states that seem particularly realistic and positive in Israel-Palestine anyway. I mean, if, if I'm looking at end states, it looks like one one party has all the power, they're a nuclear power, and they're going to be quite unwilling to make any concessions. But this idea that from the river to the sea, you're going to be able to have some sort of one-person, one, one one-vote democracy... Um, I don 't know why the Israelis would accept that, and they've got so many you know cards in their hands, and then I would say also that you know probably the actions like this from Hamas are probably going to make that even less likely right because you want to presumably you want to build some sort of coalition between um, Palestinians and Jewish Israelis to try and make a, a one state seem a little bit more attractive and I would say this kind of thing probably takes people a step back
4: Michael it- In South Africa, the white South Africans did not want to give up the highest standard of living in the world. They didn't want to give up their swimming pools and their maids. Um, And so it took a huge amount of international pressure, sanctions, boycotts, and struggle from black South Africans, a a heroic freedom struggle that made the continuation of their lives um, very, very difficult. They lived by the end of apartheid in a a pretty tough state of emergency. Um, So that's the choice. You know, Israel has systematically... removed every possibility of Palestinian progress towards freedom. To weaken the secular PLO, they funded and supported Hamas. When PA negotiated off uh, huge concessions, we know from the leaked Palestine papers that Israel refused those, those huge concessionary offers that caused huge controversy in Palestine. Israel still refused them. So here's the choice. Here's the choice. You say you're a pragmatic person. Face it. Will the next generation of Palestinian children grow up in Gaza under siege? Will they grow up in the West Bank under military occupation? Should Palestinian parents simply accept that it is the future of their children and their children's children forever to live under the barrel of a rifle in their own homeland, a rifle that could kill them? Or should they try to struggle however they can by protests and strikes and marches and boycotts and sanctions and any kind of resistance for the things that you and I would consider basic and that I want everyone in the world to have and that the Israeli population doesn't want Palestinians to have. The vast, vast majority of the Israeli population has no interest in Palestinians living in freedom because they know that they're a settler colony and they live in stolen homes. Um, But uh, if we don't want a world where ice cream trucks are now being used to store bodies, Uh, you're right that there are very, very few options and it's very, very tough. But I I think it's it's, it's living in la-la land to think that there can be lots of nice coexistence initiatives because the vast majority of the Israeli population has shown they have no interest, even in a two-state solution, and let alone in, you ask an Israeli, would you be willing to pick up a gun to keep a Palestinian family returning to the home you took from them? Most of them are going to say yes. So it's going to take a huge change in the situation. But the hopeful thing is that colonizers have been defeated all over the world in Algeria, in Mozambique, in Vietnam, and in South Africa. But it takes enormous struggle. And we have to show solidarity uh, with that struggle. And we have to pressure our own government to stop supporting the colonizer.
0: I mean, the difference here is kind of the numbers, right? So, you know, if you're looking at South Africa, you had a really small white minority and a huge black majority. If you're looking at Israel-Palestine, you've got essentially the same number of of Jews as Arabs. So the, the Palestinians sort of broken up across the various uh, territories, so across the West Bank, Gaza, and, and Israel. But there's about 7 million Palestinians, about 7 million Israeli Jews. So it just, again, that, the, the analogy to um, Algeria, which lots of people you know, on your wing of the left use.
4: It just doesn't seem uh, like, I I can't see this playing out like that. Since 1948, in which 700,000 people were ethnically cleansed, we have had the construction of an ethnostate. So you have a choice. Are you okay with that ethnostate or do you want it to end? I want it to end because I want everyone to live in freedom. Actually, I tell you very selfishly as well, I I want, I want don't want Jews to be colonizers and occupiers, which is, I think, killed and, and destroyed the soul of my people. So I have my own reasons. But it's also because I want everyone to live in, in freedom. So if you want that, you're absolutely right. The numbers make it very hard. Look, in the United States, where there was a huge and militant struggle against white supremacy, not yet over, but it made lots of progress. It was also true that actually the whites were in, were in greater numbers um in, in southern states than than the than the black population that they had enslaved and oppressed. But nonetheless, you know, Nat Turner led a slave rebellion in which, again, they killed lots of civilians. Um, and then there was lots of nonviolent action as well. And there was a huge campaign to try to, uh, to try to end that racist status quo of, of slavery and then Jim Crow. Um, So even when the numbers are against you, um, you, you face a choice. Are you going to accept a life of endless subjugation? Because as you say, that's what the Israeli population wants. I mean, just look at how they vote in elections. The number of Israelis who vote for political parties that are committed to any kind of serious peace process Uh, let alone the right of return for Palestinian refugees, is so minuscule. I mean, we're talking parties like Hadash. um, uh, Overwhelmingly, it's Palestinian citizens of Israel who vote for them. So the vast majority of Israelis vote for parties that want to consolidate a status quo in which they're living on stolen land and partying next to an open air prison. Um, I I agree that makes progress extremely difficult. But it's for that reason, Michael, that I think what we can do in the West is just lobby our governments to remove the kind of support that Israel relies on. Because Israel relies on an iron dome to defend itself from rockets that is funded by the United States. Israel stands because it is supported by the United States and by other Western imperial powers. So we can hand-ring about how difficult it is to get to Palestinian freedom. I think we shouldn't therefore spend time condemning Palestinians. But we can hand-ring about that difficulty. There's real stuff we can do. And the real stuff we can do is pressure our governments to stop supporting israel because israel relies on that support and if israel was placed under sanctions by the gov- by governments around the world they would be in serious trouble and would be forced to the kind of serious negotiations not the negotiations we've seen in the past but the kind of serious negotiations in which they talk about ending their position of colonial supremacy and palestinians freedom it's, it's completely conceivable there is enough room in that land for everyone to live in peace and freedom there really is the Israeli state has no interest in it. The Israeli public has no interest in it. And so, they, and so we have to do what we can to put, to put them in a kind of pressured situation in which they are pushed to give people, not to give other people supremacy over them. You know, the white South Africans always used to say, if we give up our supremacy, they'll murder us in our beds. Um, uh, no, that's, that's not what anyone wants. What, ev- what we want is for everyone to live in peace and freedom.
0: It's quite abstract. I suppose, I mean, where I stand on this is all of these things are so far off, you might as well just, you know, I, I think a, a coalition can be built fairly easily for Israel to follow international law, for us not to fund them with arms, and for us to boycott them, whether or not that's to to end apartheid to get to a two-state, or whether or not to end apartheid to get to a one-state. So I don't think these should be dividing lines, and obviously we spend, you know, 95% of the time on this show talking about the Israeli government. The reason I just keep picking this up is because I feel like you're making dividing lines between people who might have a more two-state or reformist end and people who might have a a one-state end,
4: when I think probably we, we don't really need that to be a dividing line. My opposition to the two-state solution, as it's called, is, is twofold. Um, firstly, that if it means an Israeli state existing in any part of historic Palestine, it means that those who are ethnically cleansed do not get to return to their homes. And secondly, that it is a utopian lie. A two-state solution is the thing that is spun out by Israel's international supporters all over the world constantly to justify their continued funding for the one-state apartheid reality from the river to the sea. You just saw it today. Joe Biden arrived to talk to Bibi Netanyahu and said, in passing, of course, I support a two-state solution, while continuing to fund the state, Israel, which has made absolutely clear that it has no interest in a two-state solution. At every election, the parties that win the election, Israel, make very clear that they will not countenance a two-state solution. That's why they're not even engaging in the farce of peace talks anymore. Um, So the Israeli state has no interest in a two-state solution, but it's become an alibi that its global supporters use to shove money at Israel and say, well, of course, we want peace, and these dangerous fanatical Palestinians don't. The reason Palestinians are troubled by the language of a two-state solution is because Gaza is so densely populated because it's stuffed full of people who want to return to the villages they were ethnically cleansed from. That's why Palestinians find talk of a two-state solution disturbing. The reason the rest of the world now finds it slightly um, uh, tiresome is that it's, been, it's become clear that it's an alibi and not a real solution at all. The Palestinian
0: Authority did agree to a two-state solution. I mean, I suppose where I'd respond to that, and we should, we should go on to our next story, but I totally agree with you that the language Israel understands is force, right? The language most states understand is force. So there's no point in trying to persuade Israel to do anything. What we need to be doing is sanctioning Israel, boycotting Israel. You need to put them under the same kind of pressure that you know, the whites in South Africa were put under. But that pressure can be applied to get to a number of end states which are both, to one degree or, or other, sort of more or less acceptable. So I'm not sure like the maximalist position is always sort of necessarily should be the dividing line. Next story. Western leaders are giving Israel carte blanche to commit war crimes, as are much of the press. One journalist who isn't, though, is Mark Lamont Hill. On Al Jazeera, he challenged former Israeli deputy foreign minister, Danny Ayalon.
7: Secretary-General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, said that he was deeply distressed by Israel's Israel's announcement of a siege on the Gaza Strip. He said that the humanitarian situation, quote, will only deteriorate exponentially, and that crucial life-saving supplies, including fuel, food, and water, must be allowed into Gaza. So the UN is saying you must do this. You are saying you're not going to do this. Um, how do? You no, we're not, we're not saying that. He's saying, do it, yeah, he's saying, saying doing it immediately. Yes. What I'm saying is what,
5: you, what you're doing. No, no. He's saying doing it, do it, okay. do it immediately. I, yeah. I got you. I'll tell you exactly what we're saying. I'm saying we will do everything for the Gazan people. Once and now, we demand immediate surrender, unconditional surrender of Hamas. If Hamas people come out, with their hands up and clear their weapons, believe me, everything will be restored to Gaza. It is Hamas in Hamas hands. That, okay, if now they I understand. Care- Th- thank you for clarifying that, sir. I-, I think I think I think we're
7: actually on the same page here. You're saying that once Hamas leaves, you'll you'll grant the the, the Gaza people food, shelter, fuel, electricity, hospitals, schooling. And in, and if they don't, and and if Hamas doesn't leave, then they'll continue to starve and die in hospitals. You are defining for the international community right now collective punishment. You're saying until until Hamas acts differently, the two million people in Gaza are gonna be treated this way. And once Hamas acts differently, these two million people in Gaza will be treated better. That is exactly what collective punishment is. You're holding them accountable for the actions of others. That is the definition, the textbook definition of, of, of collective punishment, sir. Now you may, you, you may accept that that's what you wanna do, but this is absolutely a contravention of international law.
0: Such a good interview. And I suppose, you know, the reason I think that was so powerful is because he's not just speaking to some, I mean, he is speaking to some extremist Israeli politician. Obviously, he was in the government, so he's the mainstream of Israeli politics. But he's not just speaking to, you know, someone who is alien to us in the UK. Because we've been seeing all of our governments, all of our politicians, our government, tweeting that anything that happens in Gaza is Hamas's fault which is essentially what that Israeli politician was saying there, right? Oh yes, we are, we are going to do a siege, we are going to bomb them, but they could stop it all if they release the hostages. Now, that is collective punishment, but that's what James cleverly, it's what Keir Starmer was saying for quite a while. Also, by the way, it is worth noting, Hamas have said they will release the hostages if um, Israel stops bombarding them and they release some of their prisoners who are held without trial. So they essentially are
5: hostages as well, to be honest.
0: Let's look at how Ayalon responded
5: no had we had no if we had we pushed them into the wall we're not pushing them to the wall we want to open a humanitarian corridor so they can leave but if hamas so that who can hamas leave? Should, so that who can leave citizens n- you're saying
7: civilians can leave but only through the Rafah border correct at this point yes so they can't
5: cause where else your country <laughs> they can come into israel I'm telling you one more thing I want to say. I want you to address that point. Don't just
7: smile, sir, respectfully. You're saying, they, they, I'm you're, not, saying you're making a corridor. They can, go to, they can go to Egypt.
5: You're bombing them. You say you want to save them, but you, they can't come in. I, first of all, I'm not smiling. I'm crying in my heart. I'm crying in my heart for all the butchery of thousands of Israelis. Why do you think the world is with us? Why do you think the world is wise? All the international media was there. So don't ta- talk to me about collective punishment. Don't talk to me about humanitarian. These are new rules of the game.
0: Well, the world isn't with Israel, right? The West is with Israel, or at least the governments of the West are with Israel. And much of the global South is with Palestine because they recognize that this is a colonizer with an ocupi- with a, or an occupier with an occupied people, right? So this idea of the world is with Israel is just factually untrue. Some very powerful countries are with Israel, but the world is not. Barnaby, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure Mark Lamont Hill got fired from CNN, didn't he, for saying you know, something along the lines of, for the river to the sea. Um, it's good to see he's, he's got a job where he can still be pretty powerful and persuasive in a host chair.
4: Yeah, Mark Lamont Hill was fired from a mainstream American media organization for using a sentence, which he clarified many times was a call for freedom, peace and democracy for everybody. And that tells you just about all you need to know about uh, the Zionist state, uh, Israel um, and about its international supporters. The most basic liberal demand, one person, one vote, is death to the Israeli state. Uh, it is an ethno-state which relies, which which doesn't even recognize an Israeli um, nationality on people's ID cards, they're, they're Jewish or Arab. Um, uh, it is a state constructed on the basis of um, having a Jewish demographic majority, and that's why they can't do the, what would seem like the obvious thing, which is, say, if we want to carpet bomb your homes, pretty criminal, um, and we're telling you that we want you to get out of those homes and we've penned you into an open air prison, we'll open the cage door and let you come into uh, the fields that surround you in Southern Israel. They won't do that because that would mean non-Jews arriving into a state that they want to retain as uh, ethnically Jewish majority. It couldn't be more racist. It is racist to its core. And so every Western politician who gives us lectures about their commitment to principles of diversity, who kneels, for God's sake, kneels to say that black lives matter and then funnels billions of dollars to support a state that is premised on one ethnic group owning and controlling land that they got by chasing another ethnic group from it. No Western politician should ever be taken seriously when they talk about democracy and human rights and basic human equality while they're doing that. It's not very surprising. How do you think the USA came to exist? How do you think Canada and Australia, and New Zealand and South Africa, and all these states came to exist? Of course, it was through settler colonial ethnic cleansing. But that's the basis of this thing they call Western civilization. So when they walk around the world and lecture other people about human rights and Western civilization, that's what it is. It's that kind of violent domination. And, that, and, and Israelis, you know, settler colonists are always kind of a bit more honest. They're at the frontier against the savages as they see it. And they, they, see, they see people in places like Britain as softies who don't have to fight against the savages and just just depend. You know, we're not drowning people in the Mediterranean. We, we, we depend on European frontier states to do that for us. Um, uh, so they, they think we're living comfortable lives that depend on their violence, but they're open and honest about the kind of violent domination that sustains this thing called Western civilization. And that's what Israel is.
0: Navarra is only possible because of the support of our regular supporters. We do really, really appreciate these super chats, but Google does take a cut. And for us to be able to plan um, long-term into the future, it is great to have you signed up for monthly donations. We are in the middle of a fundraiser. um, So if you do want to donate, do go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. Next story. As Israel prepares to commit war crimes in Gaza, it doesn't want journalists watching. Israel hasn't allowed any international journalists into the territory since bombing began. And of those Palestinian journalists who were already in Gaza, 10 have been killed. Four of those were killed alongside their entire families. Within Israel, journalists have also been harassed. They include a team of journalists from BBC Arabic who were assaulted and held at gunpoint by Israeli police in Tel Aviv. And a journalist from the Qatar-based news station Al Arabi who was harassed by an Israeli security guard while broadcasting from the Israeli
5: town of Ashdod.
0: <laughs> مشاركته معنا على الهواء من أسدود ما الذي كان يقوله لك أحمد؟
6: عناصر من الشرطة الإسرائيلية يحاولون أو يراقبون ما الذي نتحدث وخرج مرة واحدة للصراخ بهذه الطريقة وللتهديد بطبيعة الحال
4: تهديد جديد للتواقم
0: الصحفية كما نرى على الشاشة عنصر من الشرطة الإسرائيلية We'll turn Gaza to dust, we'll turn Gaza to dust. That was sort of widely reported as being a policeman. I think, you know, it says security on his hat. Um, so I think he's a security guard. But I mean, clearly from the language we've been hearing from politicians, arguing that you want to turn Gaza to dust is, is not a minority position in Israel. Um, a journalist has also been killed close to Israel's border with Lebanon. He worked for Reuters, and this report is via CNN.
3: Reuters
4: journalist Isam Abdullah was filming a live shot while in southern Lebanon when Israel fired artillery into the area where he was gathered with several other journalists.
6: Abdullah was killed in the blast and six other journalists were injured.
1: Reuters says they partially muted the live stream they published out of respect for colleagues involved.
4: The journalists were wearing jackets clearly labeled press at the time of the attack. The Israel Defense Forces acknowledged firing artillery into Lebanon, but a spokesman did not admit it was an Israeli strike that took Abdullah's life, telling CNN that it was in response to an explosion near the security fence.
0: Completely appalling journalists being killed for doing their job. And I mean, I think one thing this really raises, right? So you hear all the time, Israel are, are different, they don't target Civilians—they've got these very high-tech weapons, which means that everything can be very targeted. You know, if it's completely unavoidable, there might be some civilians that, that die if they've got to get this military target um, that happens to have civilians sort of living near it. Now, I don't buy that, but that's the argument they make, right? But here, they weren't near a military target, and they were all ju- there was a whole huddle of journalists, right, with with press written on them. So either Israel is just you know shooting out rockets willy nilly. Or it seems like they did target journalists here. Because as I said, there was a lot there. There was one journalist who was tragically killed and a number of others who were were injured. If you get into a situation where journalists are made to be terrified of covering a war, why would a state that's committing war crimes want to do that? Right? You don't have to be a rocket scientist um, to work out that that might be... Something which would benefit the side who are committing war crimes and who have absolute power on the battlefield, to be honest. Of course, social media means that footage from war zones won't just come from professional journalists. But due to Israel blocking their energy supplies, the connection of Gazans to the outside world is under threat. Marwa Fatafta is a policy analyst at the Palestinian think tank Al-Shabaka. She told the Washington Post this... People don't have enough electricity to charge up their devices. There are people who can't send SMS messages. Some telecommunications infrastructure has been damaged. It's becoming an information blackout. Barnaby, what do you make of this? Why might the Israelis not want
4: journalists covering their war? Well, I think your question answers itself there, doesn't it, Michael? Israel relies on a binary between the civilized and the savage, which says that things that white men in suits do are always different from things that Arab men with rockets do, and the things that white men in suits do, Uh, are always uh, more to be trusted, which is why you see their accounts of their atrocities uh, get taken more seriously by the Western media than than Palestinian accounts do. Um, And it's this strange thing, right, where where they'll they'll use the history of anti-Semitism and say, we're the victims of European civilization, we're Jews, Um, and then in fact use the fact that they have ceased to be in the European imagination Semites, Jews, outsiders, and have become um, representatives of whiteness, uh, people who can be trusted as good imperialist allies. Um, uh, They'll use that to their advantage. The founding Zionists, uh, people like Theodore Herzl, were assimilationists who wanted uh, uh, Jews to become less Jewish, and then realized in becoming Zionists that, the, that the, what we really needed to do to become less Jewish was to have what all the other Europeans did, which was a nation-state, ideally a colonial, imperial nation-state. So Zionism is a project in, in turning Jews into white Westerners, and as white Westerners, you get to murder people with impunity. It's what America does all over the world, it's what Britain's done all over the world for centuries, and now it's what Israel does. And what you don't want is journalists coming in to ask questions. Forty Fortunately for them, journalists can sometimes be relied on to uh, have a lot of credulity and report what they want. Um, But while journalists can freely stand in the south of Israel and interview uh, uh, people whose family members were killed by Hamas rockets, um, uh, access to Gaza is much more difficult. Even when journalists can get to Gaza, there is this enormous inequality where um, because the numbers of people killed are usually so unequal. I mean, part of Israel's ferocity in this, in this attack is because for the first time, there were a few days when more Israelis had been killed than Palestinians. But if you look at the graphs of, of, of numbers killed over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, it's always vastly disproportionately Palestinians killed meant much more than Israelis. Journalists will go and find the families of a a few of of the small numbers of Israelis murdered by Palestinians and and will tell their stories of those individuals. And then we'll come to Gaza and just see a wall of death and destruction. And so Palestinians don't get the kind of individuality, the kind of personality that Israeli victims get because the scale is just so overwhelming that you don't hear about the lives that every child and baby and student and mother uh, lived or could have lived in Palestine. You just see these huge fields full of dead bodies. Uh, As I said earlier, ice cream trucks now uh, full of dead bodies. Um, Whereas in Israel, when people are killed, they get personality because the numbers are smaller and they're reported on as individuals. So even when journalists can get there, the reporting is very unbalanced. Um, But of course, Israel doesn't want journalists to get there just as in apartheid South Africa, they did everything they could to stop journalists reaching the townships and reporting on the scale of the violence that the state was committing. Barnaby, it's always an absolute pleasure having me on, even if you have left me a little bit exhausted. It's been a different show than usual, Michael, but these are extraordinary times. And, um, you know, we, we still agree that your rent is too high. So we agree on some things, Michael. We
0: probably disagree on how to change it, though. Anyway, um, thanks to all of you for tuning in. This show is back tomorrow from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Novara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com
5: support.